Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Call Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! What's up? I'm Elliot Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. Today I'm joined by... Nick Dawson, Editor-in-Chief of Talk House Film. And this is, I'm loving the party vibe of this new theme music. You haven't been on since The Range redid our theme tune. You haven't been in since uh, the remodeling. I feel fresh and new and shiny. <laughs> Listeners, we have a very cool show for you today. Recorded live at Soho House in Los Angeles. David Lowry in conversation with James Ponsolt. I love it. Two of my OG Talk House contributors two incredibly gifted filmmakers, two of the nicest humans you could ever meet. Now, Nick, you curated this particular conversation to celebrate Lowry's fantastic new film, The Old Man and the Gun. It's a winner. The Old Man and the Gun is a, a wonderful movie. It is very sadly, and, and as they touch on in the talk, this is the final movie starring Robert Redford, and he leads an incredible cast in this film. Sissy Spacek, John David Washington, Tom Waits, Casey Affleck, Danny Glover, Elizabeth Moss, all the way down to smaller roles for people like Keith Carradine, Gene Jones, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Shit! <laughs> you, know, you know him from The Wire? You're right. You know the guy. You know the guy. <laughs> now, this is not David Lowry and Robert Redford's first time working together. No, indeed. They work together on, on Peace Dragon. And one of the things they talk about in, in this conversation is this idea in David's work of ongoing partnerships, of ongoing collaborations. He's worked multiple times with Casey Affleck, who was in his first movie, Ain't Them Bloody Saints. And his ongoing collaboration with the, the wonderful Daniel Hart, who's his composer, he also talks about that. And Daniel Hart, of course, possibly most famous for scoring David's movies and doing the theme song to Estan, but also another talk house contributor. Nick, speaking of fantastic musicians, I, I have a new life plan. May I lay it out for you? Do it. I'm going to go back to school instead of studying music. This time I'll study film and I will write a feature and, you know, I'll sort of get it out there in a small way. Then I'll do another one. Then I'll go through the Sundance Academy, as it were. I'll take all the Sundance Which classes. right next to Hogwarts. Exactly. Yes. It's yeah. next to Hogwarts. You take the Hogwarts Express right there. Mm -hmm. And I will uh, then make a breakthrough film starring huge Hollywood names all in order to get to hang out with Tom Waits. I think that'll be worth it. I mean, man, David has some great stories in this talk about Tom Waits. Just the joys of talking to him on the phone, stories about going guitar shopping oh, man. with Tom Waits. Man, I would give some kind of, maybe not my most major body parts, but, but a couple some of kind of minor tones. organs. Yeah. You know? <laughs> One thing I didn't realize, Nick, when you first paired these two filmmakers is that James Ponsolt actually had a small role in helping this film come along. Indeed, David and James are, are good friends. And when David was doing rough cut screenings of the film, James came along and, and gave notes. And so it was cool for him to see the, the finished product after having been involved in, in a small way in shaping the film. Ponsolt, of course, has an amazing catalog of films that, that he's made. Most recently, The Circle, which was based on the Dave Eggers novel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, before that, the end of the tour, the, about... David Foster Wallace, which is a, a wonderful movie, one of my favorites of 2015. And Spectacular Now, before that, another great movie. Can you go wrong with the rom-com drama? Not with James Ponsold at the helm, you can. <laughs> These two chopped it up about a lot of things. We hear some great stories about the writing, rewriting, and filming of The Old Man and the Gun, but we hear about so much more. They talk about everything from David's nerves about this being the last Robert Redford movie. The pressure. Yeah, I mean, yikes. I, I mean, of course, we're, we're all just really hoping against hope that it's, it's not. Something else they talk about. 
And then the fun of getting to play with, well, use old cars in movies. A running theme for Lowry. And how they avoided making this sort of an Instagram version of a 70s movie. We also hear all about David Lowry's pure hatred of ficus trees. I, I mean, I think he's not alone there. I, fuck I, ficus trees. Fuck the ficus. Uh, the unlikely influence on this movie of Robocop. I would not have guessed it, but once it's been pointed out, I can see it. Yeah, it's, it's, you'll, you'll agree as well. The way that directing kids in his movies actually gets him to the right level. Pretty interesting. And that thing that always happens with filmmakers where they have a really expensive song that they want to use. In this case, he did it. And there's a pretty cool story behind it. Go big or go home. Well, go go see this movie. Fuck you, ficus tree. Fuck you, ficus! Should we roll it? Let's roll the tape. I really love this film. I've seen it a couple times now. Can you just start from the beginning and talk about um, sort of when you first read the David Gran New Yorker article? It was sent to me in an email that also mentioned that this was like something Robert Redford had and wanted to develop as a starring vehicle for himself. And he was a character he'd been wanting to play for a while. And I guess he hadn't found the right filmmaker or had just had been making other movies. He didn't want to direct it himself. And so um, I had just had a feature at Sundance for the first time, Bane the Mighty Saints. I hadn't met him there. I just, you know, I'd been in the same room as I'm sure you've been at that, that brunch that you go to where he goes and gives a little speech and, and so I, he was still sort of, you know, this untouchable legendary icon, you know, that was always like, you know, on a pedestal. And so to get to go meet him in his office in Santa Monica and just talk about this article and about other things, about life, about like being from Texas, because he's got roots in Texas, as do I. And at the end of that meeting, it was just kind of, you know, they sent, he sent me off to go write a script. And I then spent four years writing the script, <laughs> which is funny because like the final script is like 80 pages. There's not a lot there, but it took a long time to get the almost 200 page first draft winnowed down into the shape of what it ultimately became. I, the same day I met him, I went to Disney and pitched this Pete's Dragon movie that I wound up making as well. And so I was writing them simultaneously, concurrently. That one was finished first and it just was ready to go. And so we went off to make that, but there was a role in there that I offered to him and he, I'm so glad that he took it because it was a wonderful luxury to have the chance to work with him on that movie. And as soon as that was done, I understood him more. I understood him as, a, as, a, as an actor. I understood him as a friend at that point. And I was able to go home and just rewrite the script completely for him in a way that I hadn't been able to before. And did, um, when did David Grant first, re did, he re did he read numerous drafts of the script? Or? I feel like he's probably read two or three drafts of the script. And he was the first person, you know, when I got the job, I, he was the first person I called. And I wanted to just get all of his sources. I was like, give me everything. I just want to dig into this the way you dug into it. And he's like, yeah, I wrote it 10 years ago. I don't think I have any of that material anymore. <laughs> or I don't know where it is. Um, but he, you know, I just, I interviewed him basically about him interviewing Forrest and got as much as I could out of him. And then um, he was like, you know, John Hunt, this detective who chased him, whose name really, like John Hunt is like too good to be true for a name. Um, he still lives down outside of Austin. So I tracked him down and went and, and hung out with him and, and got more details. Less, less details about Forrest because he never actually, he was on the case, but he never caught him, nor did he actually meet him. Um, so from him, I got more of a sense of what it was like to be a detective in that era and also how much fun he had. You know, he was like, it really was just playing cops and robbers. The stakes were a little higher, but 
we were having fun as, as detectives and the bank robbers were having fun as bank robbers or whatever they were robbing. The, the crooks were having fun as crooks and everyone just seemed to be like mutually appreciative of the other <laughs> parties, in, you know, uh, efforts. Like he was like, his quote, which is in the article and which we have in the movie is like, um, you know, they have been robbing banks for longer than we've been trying to catch them. And he felt that, you know, Forrest and his gang were so good at what they were doing that made him a better detective. And he really was like thankful for that. And he was indeed like, there was like a, an aspect of him that didn't want the chase to end. Although he would never in real life have let Forrest walk away if he had come across him. And when was the first time that John Hunt saw the film? Um, on Thursday night. What he, did he, he think? He loved it. <laughs> I was just emailing with him earlier today and he like, he's just so blown away by it. And on the one hand, it's like weird just to know that you're being involved in a movie, but then to get to go to the premiere, we had the premiere in New York the other night and to get to go to that and just, you know, stand on the red carpet and be photographed next to Robert Redford and, and all those things. I think it's just a, he was anxious to get back to Texas, uh, both because it was overwhelming and also because like he has a lot of good news stories to tell now. It's <laughs> cool. Um, I mean, there's so many things that I love about this film. One thing that I, I love about all of your films, but especially here is it feels like there's this story that's sort of happening in the foreground and then there's so much life happening around the periphery. There's um, sort of in this Altman-esque way, there's a conversation behind our conversation in the bank or in a parking lot or there's constantly kids running by yeah. in the background. I think multiple scenes, there's these kids, maybe they're the same kids, I don't know. But can you talk about like um, how, how you create that, you know, at a conceptual level, was that something that you thought of and you're like, I want life to be happening everywhere? Is it something that gets put into the script? Is it something, deep conversations with your AD? Like at, at what levels... A lot of it really is in the script. You know, all those kids that you mentioned or the conversations. And what happens is, you know, especially in telling a true story like this, it's easy to get overwhelmed by how much incident there really was. And like his story is crazy. Like there's too much for one movie. You could make a documentary miniseries about this guy's life. And, or, or you could make, you know, the checklist movie that just goes, you know, through the years and just kind of hits the greatest hits of Forrest Tucker's life. And... I wrote that version of it and it just didn't feel right. It just felt a little too, it didn't feel like a movie I would want to make um, or even really go see. And it was interesting, but I was like, you know, I'd rather just watch a documentary about him or read the article. So I, I just narrowed my focus and I found that, you know, there's these two years where Forrest Tucker was out of prison longer than any other period in his life where he was, in, in his own words, it was when he got really good at being a robber. And I was like, okay, let's just take those two years and focus on that. And then within those two years, how little can I get away with? How, how few scenes can I get away with? Like, let's take the first 10 minutes of an, you know, under 90 minute movie and just have it be a scene of the, these two characters talking in a diner. And so as you start to just explode these moments out, you naturally start to look for these details and these ways to just sort of like dig into those moments and into those scenes and find that life that exists around the periphery. Can we talk a little about, I mean, the cast is fantastic and this is one of, if not the greatest assembly of sort of elderly bank robbers <laughs> that I've ever seen. So uh, Danny Glover, Tom Waits, yeah. Robert Redford, how did you, I mean, Redford you spoke about, but yeah. How, yeah, how did you put the... I was just fans, you know. I, you know, one of the things I love about Danny Glover is not only is he like an iconic, legendary actor, but he's like so involved in so many great causes and he produces really amazing art films. Like he produces like Lucretia Martel movies and a peach upon beer ethical movie. So I kind of wanted to just meet him and talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, we sent the script to him and he quickly said, yes, he was like, 
yeah, I want to be in a Robert Redford bank robber movie. I was like, I know the part's a little small. There's not a ton there, but I'd love for you to like gift us with your presence and, and to make it something that people remember. And, and he was just really excited to do it. And then with Tom, I've been a fan of his since, you know, I discovered him in Bram Stoker's Dracula when I was very young. And, and through Bram Stoker's Dracula, I discovered his music and I've just been obsessed with him for years and years and years. And I was just like, that'd be amazing if we get Tom Waits in this movie. Like what a, what a coup, but it'll never happen. But his, he had seen Anthem Body Saints, it turns out, and liked it. So when we sent the script to him, he it appealed to him because he liked that film. And he read it and at first turned it down. We had a really long phone call at the end of which he was like, yeah, it's, you know, I don't think it's for me. And uh, he's like, that quote from the movie, he's like, I'm 67 years old and I got to start thinking about what my next score is going to be. That's like what he, that's how he ended the phone call. <laughs> and, I, and so number one, I borrowed that line and put it into the script. And number two, I asked him if we could, um, you know, if he could just, you know, I understood his reasoning and it was totally just an honor to talk to him. But if I could send him another draft of the script in a little bit and if he would just keep an open mind about it. And so then I rewrote the part with a little bit more specificity for him, sent it back to him. And uh, we had another phone call, which again, I would have been happy with because talking to Tom Waits on the phone is just amazing. And at that point, he, uh, he agreed to do it and he was into it. And uh, he asked if we could dye his hair white and also if he could have a monologue. And I was said yes to both um, happily. <laughs> and, uh, and that was that. And that was, that was the Christmas monologue? The, yeah. the Christmas, yeah. So that was, when, I, when he said he wanted to have him, you know, he'd be interested. He, would, he never like demands a monologue, but he's like, he'd be like, he's like, it feels like it'd be nice to have a monologue. And I was like, what would you, do you have any idea of like what you'd want to, I could write something, but do you have anything in mind? And he's like, well, there's one time. And then he just told that story. And I was like, can we just use that? And it feels like a Tom Waits song. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and he's, like, he's like, yes. And as, as far as I know, that story is, I'm happy to believe that it's 100% true. Yeah. <laughs> Did you talk about music with Tom Waits at all? You know, yes. And I, I don't want to go into the type of music we talked about, but, you know, there was a lot of talking music. And then my producers, Toby and James, uh, one weekend while I was sadly out doing something related to the production. I think I had to go like shot list on location as you sometimes do. They took him guitar shopping and he just sat in a guitar shop in Cincinnati, Ohio for like two hours, just playing music. And, uh, and I was like, why, why couldn't I, why did I have to go shot list? Jeez. It's hard being a director. Man. It is. Yeah. You just get pulled away from so many life moments. Um, can you talk about the children in the cast and just sort of how you, how you found them? They're, they're fantastic. Yeah, the, uh, the Casey's kids in the film, Casey and Tika. I, well, first of all, I just love working with kids. Like all my movies have kids in them because they just bring so much life to the film. And even like setting those kids aside, there's like kids running through the whole movie. There's like kids running around constantly just because it just brings that energy to the movie that I wanted it to have in a subtle way. And so with them... We were just looking for kids in Cincinnati, Ohio, or the surrounding area, and cause that's where we shot most of the film. And I met Ari, the young lady, first, and she came in and was just knocked my socks off. She's an amazing actress. And at that point, I just assumed, like, okay, now we got to find someone that, that can, you know, match her as a brother, like, the, like as, as good as she is. And she's like, well, my brother wants to be an actor. <laughs> I was like, how old is he? And she's like, oh, like, he's two, two or three years younger than me. And I was like, okay, um, we'll bring him in, but he's hired. 
And <laughs> and because when you can find like two siblings, to, you know, they have that natural rapport already and it just brings so much more to the table. And they were both amazing actors. Like, you know, memorized their lines like, you know, professional actors they were. But they also just had such a fun affection for one another that just livened up those scenes, especially the ones with Casey because he's really good with kids as well. And and so many of the little moments they have together are things that they came up with on their own while we were like lighting the set and stuff. So it was really just a wonderful way to, you know, bring that childlike sensibility to the movie and and also just to work with two really awesome kids. And I just kept finding like new things for them to do. Like the scene with the changing the tire on the side of the road, that wasn't originally in the movie, but I was like, we need more of these kids in this film. And so we came up with that scene. And how different, like when you're directing Casey to get the performance that you want versus the children, do you speak to them in different ways or? I speak to everyone like they're seven years old. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the maturity level I operate on and I have to ask everybody to like come down to my level. Yeah. So, I mean, I really love working with kids because I feel like I can kind of, I feel like I am like, that is my maturity level. And, and I love working with other actors who sort of like love, you know, finding that in themselves as well. Sometimes they naturally have it. I mean, I think Bob and Casey both were like, both excited to act like teenagers in this film. Cool. I, one thing that really just blew me away, I mean, I haven't said this to you, but when I first uh, watched it was just the, 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 the feeling of place and the look of your film. It feels... I mean, I think we have a lot of uh, similarly favorite films from the 1970s. Um, and this feels to me like a lost film that I would put next to like Thieves Like Us and Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Or, yeah. you know, so from the opening images, it also feels like William Eggleston photographs from, the, from, the, from that era. And every detail is so perfect. Can you talk about um, finding the locations, working with your production designer, and then also working with your cinematographer? Yeah, I mean, those were the, both of those films and the photography that you mentioned were both, you know, reference points. Um, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot is so darn good. So good. I mean, I, I don't know if like the money flying out of the trunk is a subconscious reference to the rabbits flying out of the trunk in that movie, but nonetheless, like it's a moment I think of often. We wanted this movie to feel nostalgic, but not in an sentim overly sentimental way. We didn't want it to feel like a, an Instagram version of a 70s, early 80s movie. And so we just tried to like find things that felt a little less perfect, you know, a little more drab or a little, we never tried to, heighten the aesthetic. And, and so as a result, I think, you know, because we weren't looking for the perfect 70s locations or the perfect 70s cars or the perfect costumes, it all sort of like feels a little bit more authentic. You know, often when you're shooting like a period film or a film that takes place in like the hazy, you know, late 70s idea of like what we remember those movies feeling like, you should shoot a lot of magic hour or like make the image look pretty in a specific way. And I've done that before. But with this, I, was, I talked to Joe Anderson, my cinematographer, a lot about, um, you know, trying to shoot outside in the middle of the day as much as possible and just really get that harsh, like, top light that's not traditionally pleasing. Did he hate that idea? No, like, that whole scene with him and Sissy on the side of the road, like, we're like, great, concrete and sun coming down from above. That was our aesthetic for kicking the movie off. And so we weren't being precious about the image. We spent, a, you know, with Scott Cusio and Anel Broder, who were production designer and costume designer, they spent, you know, endless hours just like finding exactly the right costumes or the right, you know, paint swatches for the walls and all of that. But, but we tried to also never, again, sentimentalize it and never make anything too perfect. And if something was a little funky or a little ugly or just didn't feel quite, it was a little shabby or drab, we were like, great, let's embrace that. We, you know, normally I don't like to have ficus trees in movies. And this time, if there was a ficus tree in the corner, I'd be like, yeah, that's fine. That's ugly. Let's, let's just keep it. 
I mean, for the film nerds who see it, like myself, there's something... Seeing, we haven't even talked about Sissy Spacek, who's a, a goddess, but like with her and Robert Redford, they obviously in their filmographies, they've been in so many of these iconic films yeah. of the 1970s. I'm curious if Sissy or, or, or Redford had, um, when they would walk onto a set, if they had thoughts on the look and, and feel of it, would it. And not really. I mean, Sissy gives me the greatest compliment when she's she's said this a couple times now, and that she feels like it was like walking onto an Altman set. And I'm like, great, that's amazing. But yeah, they didn't really, you know, I think they were both there to just work and have fun and making the movie, but it didn't feel like a time capsule on set. You know, as much as when you make a period piece, part of the joy is you do feel like you're doing a little bit of time traveling. But again, because we weren't fetishizing it this time, it didn't really feel like that. And it took them a while, I think, to even realize that we were shooting on a super 16 millimeter just because we weren't making that big of a deal out of it. That was a big deal to me, but we weren't like, you know, proclaiming it on loudspeakers that this is a film that's shot on film, the good old-fashioned way. Are there, when you watch it now, are there any historical anachronisms that you either missed or... Like, there's one... This was either intentional or I couldn't... I feel like there's one moment maybe near the end where Casey, where we see his arm go down and we see maybe a tattoo on his arm. I mean, But that was the only thing where I was like, I, I can't tell if that's intentional or I mean when you watch it now do you feel like you got it exactly there's one car that goes by that's like not pure like in the early scenes when they're driving and every time I see it I'm like that car and we tried to paint it out but it was just too difficult so I was like well you know we were we were intentionally sloppy a lot of times in this movie let's let's be sloppy in our period car (laughs) uh authenticity uh but um but yeah like that tattoo we discussed painting it out and I was like no let's just let's just leave it you know um I mean, that tattoo shows up in all of his movies, and Joaquin has the same tattoo, so I always like like noticing it in both of their films. Um, I don't think there's anything else that's terribly just the cars. That was like the main thing. Like, there's a bunch of non-period accurate cars, and then a couple that are very specific in the opening driving scene with him and Sissy. But again, like, I'm usually a perfectionist, and with this film, I was like, let's just let it be a little sloppy, and like, let's find a way to love that and make that part of the film's charm. And the font for the titles was done by Teddy Teddy Blanks. Yeah, a wonderful um, title designer and and graphic artist in New York. Can you talk about sort of the inspirations for it? What, what's the name of that font? The font's called Hobo. Yeah, <laughs> and it was used in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And so at first, when he brought it to me, he sends me like a dozen different title ideas, but that was one of them. And I was like, that's a little too on the nose, you know? It was just, that's the Butch Cassidy font. And he's like, yes, but also. Redford used it for another movie two years later called, oh, I can't remember the title. It's an obscure movie of his. Um, Little Fawzi and Big Hess, I think is the title. And he's like, no one's heard of that movie, but Redford used Hobo again. So that he's used it twice and it would be a crying shame if you weren't the third. And I was like, that's a good, that's a good argument. So we used it. I, I find each time that I've seen it, the montage sort of of um, a forest, various uh, prison breaks, really, really moving. And then even using the footage from, I believe it's the, the chase, chase, Arthur Penn film. Yeah, can you talk sort of about put it, putting that together and and its placement in the film? And yeah, the so the the chase montage or the escape montage was always in the script. And Forrest Tucker really was like a master of prison breaks. Again, you can make an entire movie about any one of his many prison breaks, including the the San Quentin one that we we talk about a little bit here. Um, he broke out of Alcatraz. He really did a lot of incredible prison breaks in his life. And those were the ones, he always said like, 
I did, I had 16 successful escapes and then countless ones that didn't work out. And I was like, those are probably just as exciting. Um, he had like, oh, I can't even go in. If you read the article, they list a bunch of them and it's just crazy. Um, the stuff he tried to do or the stuff he did to get out of prison. Anyway, we knew that we weren't going to have that much of his life as an escape artist in the film, but I wanted that to be a part of the movie nonetheless. So I had this scene that's based again on the article. And when David Grant interviewed Forrest Tucker, the last day of the interview, Forrest brought a list of all of his prison escapes. It was 16 different prison breaks, the successful ones. And then there was 17 and it was blank. And so I was like, we're going to take that and use that. And then I want to just like flash through all of those and get a sense of this guy's life. And it was important to bring it in at the end. I remember we talked about this when I showed you the rough cut about whether that felt right or not. But I love the idea of having a narrow idea of who this character is at the beginning of the film. And over the course of the running time, it gradually widens out a little bit, you know, as you get to know him a little bit more, as you hear him tell lies, as you meet his daughter. And then finally at the end, when you see like, this chronology of his life as an escape artist. And it was, you know, always just a fun sequence. It was like, it was, you know, really fun. Like we had fun shooting it. We just were driving around Texas, like coming up with cool prison breaks and filming them uh, for a couple of days. But then I had the idea of including this footage from The Chase, which was one of his very first, I think it was his third movie. And it was, it's an amazing movie that not many people have seen starring him and Marlon Brando and Jane Fonda. And it's based on a Horton Foot play. And I think it was right after Bonnie and Clyde, if I remember correctly, but not a lot of people have seen it. And his character for most of the movie, he breaks out of prison in the first scene is on the run for the rest of it. So there's just lots of scenes of him on the run, <laughs> as a prisoner on the run. And so I asked Bob if we could, you know, if he would mind if we use some of that to not only you know, get his face into that sequence a little bit, but also just to convey the sense of, of a life lived. And he was into the idea. And so we licensed, you know, that clip. And as soon as we put that in there, what was previously just a fun, you know, flip book of a character's life suddenly took on this emotional weight. And it has a meta resonance to it as well, because all of a sudden you see this actor who we've known for so many years, for so many decades, you know, we see him as he began and then we see him as he is now. And all of a sudden it becomes something truly like meaningful and, and, and has a weight to it that it didn't have before. Had he, prior to shooting or when you were shooting, had he indicated that he was thinking of perhaps retiring after this or? He mentioned it in an interview a few months before he started shooting. And he'd never talked to me about that or anyone else as far as I know, based on the emails I was getting that day when that interview broke. And... When I first found out about it, I just felt this immense pressure, which I then immediately had to just cast off because if I thought about that while we were making the movie, I think it would have been like a sadder movie. We'd been trying to make this like elegiac final statement and that was not what any of us wanted to do. And so we just didn't think about it. And then, you know, as the movie's been coming out, he's been talking about it again. And I think for him, he does so many things. Like he, we know him first and foremost as an actor because he's a legendary actor, but he also is a legendary director and he's an environmentalist. He started a film festival and he has, and he's a producer. He's always producing all of these documentaries. And, and so for him, I think at this point in his life, deciding to retire from acting isn't that big of a deal because he has so much going on any given day. And this is just giving him more time to focus on those other things. But for us as audience members to hear that Robert Redford isn't going to act anymore it's overwhelming. It's, it's like a big deal to me. And as a fan, I hope he decides to keep acting. But I also know that he has all these things he wants to do. And sometimes 
you know, at a certain point in your life, maybe you don't feel like waiting on set for the lights to get set up anymore. Um, can you talk about one of one of my favorite scenes in the film is the the meeting between John and Forrest in yeah. the cafe bathroom. And it for me, it's one of those sort of like Pacino, De Niro sort of heat type scenes that's sort of like a it's a hello and a goodbye, and it's uh, it's an amazing scene for Redford. Casey's fantastic. What, did they actually meet in that way? Was that wholly your they never, creation? Yeah, they never met in real life, but I knew that like because you know the genre is so defined when you have a, a cops and robbers movie by them actually meeting at some point, you always need that meeting. And heat is the perfect example. Like that is the perfect version of that scene. And there's always that, you know, exchange of mutual respect that occurs, but also the sense of inevitability that it's going to have to end badly for one of them. That's always a part of it. So when I was working on the script, you know, I wrote versions of it where they meet and then a car chase happens and he chases them and arrests them or where it does lead to that inevitable, you know, him, John Hunt slapping the cuffs on Forrest Tucker's wrists. And it never felt right to me. Partially because John Hunt never really did arrest him, but I wasn't really too worried about that because, I mean, we did not stick to the true story that much in this film. But I think one of the things that I felt was like, when you watch Heat, the inevitability is there, but there's also the part of you that just really wants... De Niro to get away at the end. You really hope that he hops on that airplane with Amy Brenneman and then he just like, and Pacino's like, watches the plane take off and thinks, oh man, what a guy. You know, like there's a part of you that wants that and it can't happen. But then I was like, well, what if this is the movie where it could? <laughs> and so I just decided, you know, as I was figuring out like what John Hunt's role in the story was, I was like, he's in some ways the audience's avatar. He's going to fall in love with this guy the same way we hopefully do. And even though it is a, an atrocious decision for an officer of the law to make, as a human being, he can't help but admire him and intentionally let him go, you know, walk out that door and, uh, and keep that chase going because, you know, the chase is what was the fun part. So that was kind of when the scene, I cracked it. Like, I felt like I was like, okay, that's it. But then I was just terrified that it wouldn't be enough. I, ter I was terrified that, like, our expectations of where it needed to go, that inevitability that I was talking about were too strong and that that scene would not satisfy anyone. And there would just be, you know, we'd leave people hanging. But I don't know, when we, when we shot it that day, I mean, everyone was like watching. That was a day everyone was there on set. Like, is this enough? Do we need to write a new scene after this? I was ready to write, a, you know, a car chase that would immediately happen. Like, Casey would run out after him and, and uh, or slap the cuffs on him right then and there. But I think the first take or two, it was a little more dry and just, you know, it, it wasn't quite right there. And then I told Casey, I was like, just be utterly delighted. Just be starstruck and so pleased and find your way to the point of like having control of the situation that you ultimately do, but just be so happy that this is happening. Like and you're doing a scene with Robert Redford. Like you're doing a scene with Robert Redford. And they had just met for the first time. And so it was like e a little easier to do that. And once we did that, it just clicked into place and we knew that that was the right thing for this movie to do. It's wonderful. I mean, his joy for me as an audience member, that's my joy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that, me too. I mean, that was like, that's me not wanting that chase to end. And it's me not wanting Robert Redford to stop being yeah. in movies. Totally, yeah. It, on, on that meta level, I mean, I feel like the reason this movie matters to me personally is because if I just, you know, take out bank robbing and replace it with filmmaking, like, I get it. Like, it, it is so autobiographical in that regard. You always have such a... um 
thoughtful, um, emotional, and intentional use of, of music, both of, of source um, and score. You have a wonderful collaboration with Daniel Hart. Can you sort of talk about the music in this film? Um, I've worked with Daniel Hart on all of my movies, and it, one of the great joys for me as a filmmaker is to just have a, a new movie for him to write music to, because it means I got to listen to more new music from him. We both wanted to do something different than we'd done before with this. We always try to do something a little different, but nonetheless, like this one, we were like, let's really push ourselves outside of the comfort zone that we've previously existed in. And he suggested we do something that was a little bit more Miles Davis-ish. Thinking, I think we were thinking about like Elevator of the Gallows and, or even like Henry Mancini, like classic heist film sound. So we went with that. And it was really, it was scary because like that's not the type of music that my, my movies don't normally sound like that. They usually have a very specific sound and here we were breaking the mold. But that was also really exciting to do, I think for both of us. And then I also usually have a lot of original songs and like all, I, I never use source music. We always have like original songs, even if they sound like source. But with this one, I really wanted to just, you know, have some, some classic tunes that people would really be happy to hear. So I had this scene where, where Casey and Tika were dancing and I didn't know what the music would be. And they were just like, we need to know some, like, I was like, we'll shoot it without music. And they're like, well, yeah, but we need to know what, like, what the mood is, like, just so we can play the scene. And I was like, okay, let me think. And then I just was like, okay, let's use Lola. So we just, I had it on my iPod and we just played that for one take and, and they got the, the, the vibe down. And, and then um, in the edit, you know, the next scene was them going to this diner. And I was like, oh, I really like hearing Lola. Let's just keep it going. <laughs> Let's just keep listening to it. And it really became like a defining moment for that point in the movie. Um, it's weird. Cause like the, the lyrics don't make that much sense for that moment. But at the same time, there, there are like weird corollaries. And so it just was like a weird choice that felt completely right. And, it's not a cheap song to get. And so we were looking, we spent a lot of time looking for other alternatives that were more in our price range and ultimately just could never find something that felt as like spontaneously, unexpectedly magical as that. It's a great moment because, I mean, you get the sense that, that, that John Hunt, his career would be made in some way by catching this guy, but if he didn't catch him, he might be okay as well, and he's aware of his place in the world. But um, you know, it, it could so go one way, it could go the other. Could just go like one the way or another. Yeah. yeah, mostly he's going after this guy, but this is this moment where he just he's off the clock and just having real just joy with yeah, his wife. Yeah, totally. Uh, there's like one funny bit of trivia in that scene is like we were just having so much fun on set every day, and we always just like the actors would come up with ideas, and I'd be like, yeah, let's just do that. That sounds great. And in that scene, Casey was like what are we talking about when we come into the restaurant? I was like, I don't know. What do you, what do you want to talk about? And he's like, can I just describe the entire plot of Ain't the Body Saints over the course of the scene? And I was like, great. So if you like listen to that scene, that's what he's doing. You barely can hear it, but like there's one point very clearly where that's what he's doing. That's great. Um, I saw that um, at, at LACMA um, this week, they're going to be playing a, a double feature that, that were um, chosen by you of films that were inspirational in some ways to this film. It's Tulane Blacktop by Monty Hellman and, and Robocop by Paul Verhoeven. Can you talk about these films and why you I mean, obviously Robocop is all over this movie, right? <laughs> obviously. Yeah, I don't think we need to talk about that one. Um, Tulane Blacktop has always been one of my very favorite movies. I saw it uh, in Austin at the Alamo Draft House. Monty Hellman presented a double feature of that and, and the shooting. Uh, shooting? Shootist? Which one is it? Shooter? Shooter? How does the shootist? Shootist. shootist, yeah, shootist with Jack Nicholson. Um, anyway, I just adore that movie, and I love the you know the idea of 
myopia in films, like characters who are just so focused on one thing and just obsessed with one, one thing. And then the gradual realization that maybe they're letting something get away by focusing on that one thing. And that movie captures that better than almost anything else. So um, I just had in mind a lot while we were making this, while I was writing the script, there's the, the car chase flashbacks with Redford where we found like a 55 Chevy that was as close as we could get to the one that is in Tulane Blacktop. And then in the edit, when they were going to the movie theater, I was like, what movie should they be watching? You know, if you, <laughs> outside the movie theater, they have a poster for Alien 3. I was like, maybe they're watching Alien 3. That'd be a funny anachronistic <laughs> choice. Uh, we had to find movies from that like time period. But then I just finally was like, let's just put Tulane Blacktop in because it just felt like it would just add something to see Warren Oates given that little monologue about needing to find some way to be tied down before he spins off into outer space to one of my favorite monologues in movie history. So we put that in there. And so that's why I chose Tulane Blacktop. RoboCop is the first R-rated movie I ever saw. It's a great movie. Um, and it is one of the quintessential Dallas movies. It takes place in Detroit, but it was shot almost entirely in Dallas. And it looks the way Dallas looks. I still live in Dallas. So it, that's the way that city looks. In your childhood, especially. In especially in my childhood. Now the skyline's different. There's a lot more buildings. But when I first moved there when I was eight years old, which was the year RoboCop came out, that's what it looked like. And you can go on RoboCop tours in Dallas where you just go to all the locations. It's really amazing. And this movie takes place in Dallas, even though we shot it largely in, in Fort Worth and Cincinnati. And I just wanted that aesthetic to, uh, that you see in RoboCop of the way North Texas looks in that movie, that urban version of Texas to, to seep through in this film. So there's not, aside from Sissy's Farm, there's not like that much pastoral stuff. It's not like the countryside version of Texas um, that you might normally expect, especially from a Robert Redford movie, although of course he does end up on a horse on top of a hill. But it's got the, the, you know, the, the mix masters and all that concrete and the, that sort of like weird kind of brutalist, but also sort of 80s architecture. And, and that stuff's all, you know, in RoboCop. And I feel like because RoboCop represented it better than any other movie, we had to look at that as a reference point. Um, and then the nice corollary between those two movies is that Monty Hellman, who directed Tulane Blacktop, directed the second unit for RoboCop, um, which is just a nice coincidence. This is, I sound like an overly impressed 10-year-old boy, but I have to ask, like, the cars, I mean, all of the details in the film are so period, just spot on, but all of these cars are presumably 1981 or before. Like, can you just talk about accumulating them, using them, crashing them, driving them, everything? It's just uh, so much fun. I mean, sometimes they don't work too well, but I've made three movies now that have a surplus of period cop cars, of like 80s cop cars, and I feel like I've got to stop. I'm like, I've, I've hit peak 80s cop car at this point. Um... <laughs> But they are a beautiful car. My first car was a, a Caprice Classic, a gray Caprice Classic. And so I've tried to put that Sam Raimi style into everything I've done, almost everything. Uh, so Casey's driving one in this movie. And there's one that drives by repeatedly in Ain't the Body Saints. We couldn't quite find that car exactly for Pete's Dragon, but there's some close cousins of it. And, and that's just one of the, you know, the funnest things when you're making a movie is you go down to the picture car coordinator whose job it is to find these cars from all over the country and rent them from private owners or buy them off eBay. And he just shows you like a catalog of, of cars and you just go through and pick them out. And, uh, and he shows you where they are on the map and somehow they all show up on set the day you need them. Um, and they, come, they do come from all over the country. There's like two police cars that I think are from like 
Kansas, and they are the you know the Dukes of Hazard style cop cars, and they show up in so many movies. And the same you know the and so when we were uh, doing anything by Saints, we had those cars. When we were doing this movie, we we're like, should we get those cars again because they're available? And uh, and we decided not to, but. I don't know, it's one of the best parts of making a movie is like getting those cars on set. And just, again, it's like time travel. You've been working on this movie for a long time um, and it's about to come out. Can you tell us sort of how, how you feel like you're about to birth this into the world? Well, prior to anyone seeing it, I feel horrible. And I can, you know, like I'm so full of confidence while we're making the movie and then while we're editing it. And I'm like, I'm like, it's my way or the highway, guys. I know exactly what I'm doing. And then as soon as it's about to come out. I'm just like, oh man, I really screwed this one up. I failed horribly and we should not release it. Um, but now that it's being seen and I'm over that hump, I feel better. And the way I deal with that is I just instantly start planning something else. So I never really let myself stop and just like enjoy having made a movie. I'm always thinking like, okay, this one's done. I got to get the next one going. And so I am doing that. But with this one, getting to make it with this cast, getting to spend time over the past few weeks showing the film with, with Bob and Sissy and, and listening to them tell stories and talk about it. And I, I realize that's a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I have forced myself to just sort of slow down and enjoy that. I really enjoyed that. I could listen to David Larry for hours. The man is kind and gentle and smart and has a soothing voice. James Ponsel, not so bad either. You're right, kid. Listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you check out our new events tab on TalkHouse.com. We've been recording live TalkHouse podcasts everywhere from Rough Trade at London to Soho House in Los Angeles, Virgin Hotel in Chicago, and the iconic Strand bookstore right here in New York. Legendary locations, great conversations, never misses. We have some more great conversations coming down the pipeline, Nick. Two days from now, on October 4th, we are releasing a fantastic conversation between U.S. girls and Toon Yards. Following this week's two episodes, we're going to do another week of two episodes. Listeners, we care about you and we want to bring you cool shit. So on Tuesday of next week, we're going to kick it off with Lowe's Alan Sparhawk in conversation with Ben Gibbard, a.k.a. Death Cab for Cutie Main Man. And on the Thursday? Another OG Talkhouse film contributor, Megan Griffiths, whose new movie Sadie is out very soon, in conversation with Colin Trevorrow. You can subscribe to the Talkhouse podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever fine podcasts are served. And of course, hit us up on our socials, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. All of them. All of them. All and, of them. And, and go to YouTube as well. We've got stuff there too, right? Today's episode is recorded by Susan Vallett and produced by Mark Yoshizumi. Thanks so much to the whole team at Soho House for coordinating. And uh, I guess, should we, should we see people next time? Let's see them next time. But I do want to give one last shout out to The Range for this fantastic new theme music. The Range! Thanks, dude. Till uh, day after tomorrow, I'm Elia Einhorn. I'm still Nick Dawson. Peace. Peace.